2: Welcome to the Krishnadas Pilgrim Heart Hour. This podcast is a manifestation of our interconnected lives, and we wish to keep it free at all costs, if you can say that. So... We are dependent on the generosity of you, our listeners. So, please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash kd and either use the donate button or just bookmark the Amazon portal. We receive a small percentage of however much you pay for whatever you bought. Nothing extra for you, but a tangible contribution, if small, for us. You could also sign up for a free trial with the voluminous audible.com. We get something out of that, too. We thank you for the support and allowing us to continue presenting Krishnadas's excellent talks.
3: Um, coming back to what you said earlier about the, the house and the walls, obviously we're not the house, so we're not the, the body, so I can understand that. And probably now when you're 30-something or 40, none of the cells in your body are the same because they're renewing themselves, so physically you're not the same person Mm -hmm. but then when you you have your photo album and you look back at photos well this is when I was three years old this is when I was a baby so Mm -hmm. there's no physically you don't resemble that person anymore but then you know that this is the same person but physically it's not so what is the same thing and then it's different for every body which then contradicts saying that Mm -hmm. we're all one and I'm struggling a bit with grasping
4: that Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) Uh, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking I mean you made a nice statement but what are you asking
3: so what what is this what I'm recognizing this is me Mm -hmm. and going back and looking at when we're saying actually this is Mm -hmm. all ego and it doesn't really exist it's just the mind
4: Uh, let's not say it doesn't exist I mean that's that's a little bit extreme there's relative reality and there's ultimate reality. In the relative world, you exist, right? You asked this question, you thought about it, you picked up the microphone, somebody did that, right? So that person exists. But, you know, things look a certain way to us, the world looks a certain way. We feel a certain way about ourselves. But, you know, if we were born, let's say we're kind of a being, uh, and we're born at night, okay? At dark when there was no sunlight. And we grew up within an hour, right? And we're fully grown, and we're walking around at night, and we see these shapes around us and stuff like that. And we think this is the way things are. Right? This is, we're looking around, we see the world a certain way and then the sun starts to rise. And things look different. It's not that what we were seeing wasn't, that we weren't seeing what we were seeing. It's just that we weren't seeing the whole story. The things that you mentioned about seeing, remembering yourself as a child and, you know, the body changes, but that you feel like you're the same person there's still processes going on. And even that will change, eventually. There is this thing they call death, which kind of changes the game a little bit at a certain point. So we're processing, we're still in process right now. What won't change is what's deeper than, is the awareness of all those things you mentioned, there's awareness, consciousness, and then there's all those different experiences. The experiences keep changing. The me even keeps changing. I mean, you might think of yourself one way at three years old and another way at 30. And you would never say, I'm the same. But inside, the awareness is always the same. What's looking out of your eyes never changes. How you interpret the things that your eyes see. That changes. But the seeing is the same. Hearing is the same. It might hear different things. But hearing is the same. The awareness is not changing. But all the experiences change. So these names come from the place of awareness. This is what God is essentially. I'm sorry, I said that. I didn't mean to say that. But essentially, consciousness, truth, consciousness, and bliss are three of the qualities of this awareness. Satchit Ananda. That's what they say. So the deeper you go, the more you realize your experiences are conditioned by all kinds of things. And the more you can release yourself from those thoughts, you experience it differently. You can experience the changes in a different way. Thing is, you don't really need to know any of this. All you need to do is a practice, and that changes from the inside out. Ramakrishna didn't say, oh, you're gonna feel this, you're gonna feel that, you're gonna feel this. You will feel many things, but you keep the practice going. And that's where you get the strength to release all the stuff, all the different experiences and, and the identification with all that. Right now, we're in process. Birth, then we grow up, we get older, we get sick, and eventually we, we die. Right now, We haven't faced death yet, so we're not quite sure what that is. And what dies, we're not quite sure what that is. Me definitely dies. I doesn't die. Awareness doesn't die. Awareness is, you might say, the soul. And the soul then reincarnates, takes another suit of clothes to wear. I probably will not have T-shirts in my next life. No matter how hard I try. I could put them away in a drawer, lock them up, so they'll be there, you know? But I won't be there. (laughs) So you just... You just have to keep doing the practice, and everything you need to know comes from inside. The more you think about it, the more you think about it, and the less you are it. I mean, a certain amount of understanding is, is, is useful because it helps you, it reinforces your practice, it reinforces your understanding, and it, it gives you more uh, faith that you're doing the right thing. But to try to figure it all out or understand it all up here ain't going to happen. And if you think you figured it all out, that's when they put you away. Or you become a great guru and do bad things. It's better not to think, you know, you just can't know this stuff in the mind.
3: Just wondered if you could say something, I'm, I'm not necessarily asking about your personal experience, that's entirely up to you, but chanting the names is brilliant when we're feeling good, I find. Um, and we can feel the joy and the bliss and Hanuman leaping into my heart this morning. It's wonderful, you know, all this kind of stuff that you can experience or mm-hmm. think you experience. When things are bad, when you're feeling down. From your experience, how do you keep that practice going when you're apparently not getting anything back? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Did
4: Ramakrishna say anything about getting anything back? He He said, plant the seeds, didn't he? So when this unhappiness, depression, difficult stuff happens in life, this is karma's coming to fruition. Just like when joy and good stuff comes, that's karma's coming to fruition. You like the good stuff, and you yeah. don't like the hard stuff. Tough shit. <laughs> what are you going to do? You better do the name when you, whenever you remember, which is why you have to do a practice every day, no matter how you feel. You think practice means feeling that way. It's much deeper than that. That's just more stuff. It's nice stuff. It's like jam on the, on the toast. Sometimes you have to eat the toast dry with salt which is what I had to do after I had hepatitis. No more jam, no more butter. It was still toast. So this, this is a perfect situation. You must practice regularly, especially when you don't want to, because otherwise you never get the strength to rel- to break the attachment to the negative things. And, and you only want the sweet things in life, but it's just not that way, is it? If a practice only was like that, what good would it be? If it didn't, if it didn't help you in, in the hard stuff. So you have to go deeper. So you have to do. I mean, you don't have to believe me, but you might like to if you recognize that. Uh, over time, from doing a practice regularly, regardless of how you feel. And that's just. Never mind. That's just uh, stroking ourselves in a particular, a particular way that we like, but life doesn't always stroke us that way. But we can't stop living, so we have to keep remembering. That's the thing: remember to to repeat the name or to do your practice, whatever it is, regardless of how you feel. That's when you'll experience the real strength of the practice and the power of the practice. But again. I'm not saying to sit down and push that stuff away. I didn't say push it away, and I didn't say hold on to the pleasant stuff. I simply said, repeat the name, and remember to pay attention. As soon as you notice, oh, this is such a terrible day, I can't believe that guy did that to me. Once again, I picked another asshole who broke up with me. This is terrible, I'll be alone the rest of my life, this is going to be terrible, Right? It could be something like that. Keep singing. Keep remembering. Don't, you can't push that stuff away. If you push that stuff away, it just sticks to you. And if you hold on, to, try holding on to the joy. Obviously, that doesn't work either, right? You hold on, oh, I love this, Hanuman jumped into my heart. Wait a minute, he went right through and left the hole. <laughs> <laughs> it's all bullshit. Let it go. You know? You're here. Here is where all that stuff is happening. Right now, Always. Repeat the name. And when you notice you're gone, come back. That's all. You can always let go. That's the joy. That's the amazing part of it. Whatever you're stuck in, you can always let go. If you have something to let go into, which is this practice or another practice. This, if We're developing the power to let go. Not to just feel like this all the time. So you know, like that. Everybody knows what that is. So that's, the, that's when the real power of the practice comes. And that develops, that's a thing that you develop over time. So if you even just did five minutes a day where you turned the phone off and sat down or stood up or did whatever you do, but really tried to pay attention for just five miserable minutes a day, even if you're feeling like shit, that's a great time to practice. You'll see that that five minutes, you'll, you won't be there for one second in that five minutes. For five minutes. And then time's up. Go away. Do something else. But the effort you made in that five minutes, even though you were so unsuccessful, you might have thought, is, has a huge effect over time. So cut yourself a break, give yourself some slack, relax a little bit. Do the practice regularly or whatever practice you do regularly over time. And then you'll notice that these high experiences, they might be pleasant, but they come and go. You can't make them stay. So they must not be it, right? Because it doesn't come and go. It's who you are. Who you'll always be. We don't come and go, we're always here. It's a good question.
3: Good answer, thank you.
4: You're welcome. Sorry. What's up? What are you sorry for? Don't be sorry. And, you know, the the feeling you'll get over time of, of, of inner strength is so extraordinary. You know, but really, it comes little by little. If it c- comes too fast, um, you just wind up clinging to it and, and causing more bullshit to yourself. So you just do the practice and then live your life. You know, Don't try to make anything happen. And you'll see change over time. Guarantee. Don't hold me to it. Mm. Hi.
5: Hi. Um, I've been working. For a long time with kids, kids, uh, yeah, and so I'm gonna, and and lately I've been chanting, you know, just a chalisa with them sitting on my lap, mm-hmm. or yeah, th- actually two things happen, from my experience, either they get very like boom, and they just sit like and they listen, and we're very close, mm-hmm. or on a couple of occasions they've just. They have exploded, you know, just running into the walls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it feels very good to do yeah, it. Same thing and, happens
4: to me. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah. so I'm just wondering, do you have any experience with uh, chanting with kids or, uh, yeah, especially, and, and Hanuman and kids and the Chalisa and kids. Is there anything you can share on that?
4: You know, uh people bring their babies to see me. Babies who have all their time through the womb have been hearing me sing on CD. And the moms bring their babies like, and half the time when they hear my voice they like jump on me and hold me and hug me, you know. The other half the time the kids go like like this. And they start screaming and run away because they can't believe that the voice, this huge voice they've been hearing, you know for all this time in the womb is like actually in this body. And they freak completely, you know? So I don't know, maybe that's something like that, you know? Um, kids are great that way. There's no, um, their bullshit detectors are very high, you know. If you try to quiet a kid down, they just look at you like you're out of your mind. There's no way I'm gonna quiet down, asshole. You know? But if you're real, they respond to that. So it might have something to do with you wanting something from the kids, wanting them to quiet down. They can feel that. Or it might be just, just that's the way the energy hits them, you know. Yeah, I know, no, it's not. It's a beautiful story. It's not exactly about this, but there was a priest in a little town called Matara, which is just south of Brindavan. There was a, a Gopal temple. Gopal is baby Krishna. And this priest was a really cranky guy, an angry guy, and he never let children into the temple. He would chase them away. So he had been married a long time, and he had no children himself. And Maharaji was in the area, and he came to see Maharaji, and he said, Baba, can you bless me with a child? And Maharaji looked at him and he said, How can that be? You prevent the children from coming to play with the child. How can you have one? Let the children come and play with him, the baby Krishna, in the temple, and you'll have your child. So he, he let he started to let the children come into the temple, and they had a kid, in a year. I don't know; it's not exactly the same, but there's a, a simplicity about children. You know, a lot of people use the chanting with. Uh, autistic kids and and kids like that, and they have amazing experiences I've been uh, invited a lot to to sing with children, but I haven't been able to yet um, to meet with those kind of kids, but I get letter uh, emails all the time about that they just you know boom you know and they do a whole different thing
1: when you're in a place like this, you know the decibel level you can- earth. Yeah, well, well, this this environment, you, you, Jeffrey not, you Hall? not, yeah, you're okay. not worried about how loud you're singing or whatever. But when you're in a, like an urban flat or a, a space with neighbours, you have yeah, these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is is the is the practice? Is, does the decibel level have anything to <laughs> to do with it, or it just or?
4: depends if you want to live, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to live, just sing really loud. Your neighbours will kill you, you know. <laughs> Um, sure. You know, everything has to be appropriate. I, that's what I, I, don't, I don't lay my trip on anybody. People are invited in. So if I'm in an apartment building, I don't sing at the top of my lungs, which is why I like to live alone in a quiet place, so I can scream and yell and do all the stupid things I do. But uh, it doesn't mean you can't sing and chant. It doesn't have to be loud. What has to be loud is your attention. That's all. It doesn't even have to be out loud, although it helps to move your lips and to breathe and say the words out loud because it helps you pay attention. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect then, but of course, is that when we do this as a group and other people here, they get blessings of the name. They hear the name. and Even hearing the name is is a, a great blessing. But in India, they understand that. Not in the West. They don't, they think you're crazy. They call the police. So, unless you want to go to jail, quiet. You don't need to play a harmonium at, you know, three in the morning in an apartment building just to get off. It's all, it should be more inside. If you're in a 20,000 seat auditorium, you got to be loud. Like in Brazil, we sing outside in this uh, yoga for peace day in the park, right? There's like twenty thousand people there, and it's so loud, and the speakers are. We're on a stage like this, but the speakers are about forty feet high, like a rock, rock, like a rock concert, and you go like this, and it's like ah. I like that. Hi.
1: Hey. Um, So recently, uh, an Indian teacher of mine who grew up in the West, she introduced to me the idea that there's essentially kind of two paths of bhakti going on in the world right now. And it's kind of this bhakti revolution, you could say almost. And it seems like that in the last five years. But um, she said you know, there's kind of this Western path of bhakti where we tend to intellectualize um, so many things. And, and exactly like you're saying, we, we go inside and we find what's inside. And then she kind of dropped this bomb on me <laughs> the other day where she said, well, you know, there's that. But then there's also this more eastern path of bhakti where we rely on the, on the guru principle. And that it's not just a principle, but that there's this realized being who is alive, who is awake, who actually transfers his or her darshan to you. And that transfer of grace. So both of these paths, by the way she's saying, are equally beautiful. There's no... Like and they're not even you know exclusive of each mm-hmm. other, they, they mix with each other, obviously, but what she was saying that was so interesting was that this kind of this more Eastern path relying on the guru and having known a guru that is that is realized it's kind of like hitting the accelerate button mm-hmm. to um, to finding love in this unconditional state and so I guess my question is a do you agree with that? And B, if you do, why or why
4: not? You know, uh, if there is an accelerate button, that's your karma to have that. So it's not really an accelerate button. Uh, who, I don't know anybody except an enlightened being who can judge where you're really at anyway. And certainly we can't judge. And if we think we're accelerating, looks to me that that's just another thought. It's the same as thinking you're decelerating, right? Yeah. So uh, with all due respect to your teacher, if it works for her, fine. But it has to feel right to you. And as far as, was she saying that she knows a particular guru that she's talking about? That, in,
1: g- in general, just, well, I mean, she was...
4: No, let, let's hear it.
1: She was speaking of um, Amma.
4: Amma, okay. So, so if you feel devoted to Amma, that will certainly make you feel good. Uh, you don't, but it's not. To say that if you think that all the devotees of Amma are accelerated and you're not because you're not a devotee, that's, that's not accurate.
1: I love it. Thank you.
4: <laughs> Amma's great. She's a good guru. She does good things. She's one of the few gurus that you never hear anything bad about. When they clean out the cesspools of shit, she's the first one in there. I wouldn't get in there. But she's the first one rolling up her sleeves, shoveling shit out of these holes. So she's a good one. There's no question about it. But that doesn't mean she's the only one, and it doesn't mean she's yours or you're hers. Everybody has their own thing going on. It's a big... Life is big. So... Whatever works for you, you have to find that. You have to feel it's right. And then you have to follow that. Nobody can tell you. And you can't manufacture love, you know. Love either happens or it doesn't. You're either sitting alone in Starbucks looking out the window hoping somebody's going to come by, (laughs) or you're not. It doesn't matter. It's going to happen or not happen. You can't make it happen. It's the same with devotion. You might think Amma's great, you might think she's really beautiful, but your heart's not moved in a certain kind of way, what are you going to do? Decelerate?
1: Yeah.
4: You know, it doesn't mean you're decelerating. So there's no, no way of judging these things.
1: Yeah, I, I met her, and it was amazing, it was beautiful, but I did not feel that type of
4: first thing. time I met Amma, she gave me a really big hug. She goes, "Nim Kuroli Baba, Neem Kuroli Baba, Neem yeah. Kuroli Baba, was my guru, right? Yeah. So. And then I, I used to go sing for her, especially in New York when she came to New York. But the the fighting for stage time to sing to her got so intense. I just said, forget about it. You know, what do I let these people fight? They were ready to kill for three minutes to sing on the stage for her. You know, so I don't need to do that. You know, I'm happy, fine. It was an offering I was making. If if it wasn't gonna be accepted, they didn't want the offering, that was fine. So it's just weird, you know, what happens around gurus. In our, my day, we would kill if somebody got between me and Maharaja, you know. I would, I would you know, <laughs> you know, like. You know, so that's just the way it is. You can't help it because all your shit comes out. When, when, when the love button is pushed, it becomes chaos, which is why we're so scared of love, because we become so vulnerable. You know, when your heart opens that way, it, as great as it is, it's just that scary to
1: I'm just really interested in your earlier influences. I'm sorry? I'm interested in your earlier influences. Earlier pre- influences. pre Maharaji. like, for example, I have a, a deep Jewish background. I had a choice to come between rhythm and Jews this morning, singing with my sister, or coming here. So uh-huh. uh, I do both. Uh-huh. and it, works kind of nicely, mm-hmm. but I wonder you talk a lot about Maharaji and after, but what was your earliest influence and has it, the roots you talk about? Were the roots,
4: mm, well, do they
1: come earlier? Or?
4: The first thing, I w- the first religious, spiritual stuff I got interested in was really Buddhism. I read this book when I was in high school that said, in Buddhism your enlightenment is up to you. And I thought, wow, I like that. Because, you know, when you're 16, everybody's telling you what to do and what not to do. And here this was, it said, my enlightenment is up to me? That's fantastic. So I started getting interested in Buddhism at that point. And uh, of course, we're talking about the dark ages, you know. There were no gurus. There were no teachers coming around. There was no yogis in New York. There was a couple of them, but uh, I never got the hit from any of them, especially. Uh, the first time I, I felt something which was beyond anything I had experienced was um, there was, a, there was a, saint, uh, a yoga teacher named Sachinanda, Swami Satchidananda in Integral Yoga in New York, and he was from the Shivananda lineage, Divine Life Society, and I had met him many times. and. I liked him, but I didn't get a heart kind of hit from him. But I liked him. So I went to a weekend retreat with him, uh, just outside of New York City. And there was another Swami there with him, who I didn't know who was. And uh, Satchitananda, Swami Satchidananda gave his lecture. And at the end of his lectures, he would always go, like this, right? And I heard him so many times that when he stopped, finished the lecture, I was waiting for that. But I had my eyes closed. I was sitting there. But all of a sudden, I heard, Ram and every cell in my body was having an orgasm. Even my toes. Everything just went, it felt like somebody plugged me into an electric socket. Every part of my body, I just went, like this. And this other Swami was singing, was singing that. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know who he was, right? But it was it totally blasted me out in a way that completely beyond anything I had ever experienced. This was probably in 1968, 69. Move the clock ahead, 1972. I've been in India two years with Maharaji in the temple most of, a lot of that time. So one day, a car pulls up and a bunch of swamis get out of the car and they walk into the ashram over the bridge right into Maharaji's room, which was unusual. I mean, they didn't even, they just walked right in. And I was standing outside the room and I heard, Sri Ramya yay." And I went, what? That swami who sang that was named Swami Chitananda who was a great saint. He was the leader of Shivananda lineage after Shivananda, And he had, been, he had known Maharaji for many, many years. And in fact, when Shivananda left the body, Maharaji was responsible for him being promoted kind of to the head of the, he made him take, the, take over as the thing. And they had known, so he had been singing to Maharaji before I met him. So when I heard him sing that, he had already been singing to Maharaji for years before that. So I was getting the thing like this, right? That was pretty interesting. Yeah. I didn't feel, and then again, when I, and that was, I think that was, hmm, I don't know if I had met Ramdas yet at that point. I may have. When I met Ramdas, you know who Ramdas is? I saw, yeah. I
3: saw one giant leap. That was my first experience.
4: Yeah. When I met him, this is when I realized that uh, it's kind of a long story, but I went up to see him at his, where he was living at his father's place in New Hampshire. And when I walked into the room where he was, without a word being spoken, I knew that whatever it was I was looking for was real. It existed. It was in the world. I could find it. This was a completely new feeling. Up to then, it was just books, you know. And books, you know, who knows? Anybody, right? There's a lot of fiction out there. Even nonfiction is fiction a lot of times. So, this was the first time that I really knew that whatever it is, it's real. That was a life changing experience. It wasn't that I would have been a Buddhist monk, no question about it. And it, one time I was sitting with Maharaji, uh, and he saw he saw my my one of my notebooks where we used to write out, you know, stuff from other books, Dharma stuff. We, there were no computers, so he has to have writing actually was a thing. So he grabbed my book and he goes through it. And I had everything in there, Sufi stuff, Buddhist stuff, Hindu stuff, Christian stuff, everything. He goes to it and he stops at this page. He says, What's this? And I look and I went, Oh shit. It's Buddhist. This is Buddhist prayer. And I said, It's Buddhist. And I thinking, I'm in a Hindu temple, you know, with my Hindu guru, and I got this Buddhist stuff, and he wants to know what it is, and I'm gonna get bashed, you know. So he said, Translate some. So I couldn't, but there was an Indian guy there who started, translated this prayer, part of this prayer. And then Maharaji stopped and he said, Teek, right, correct. I, I looked at him like, what? Because it was this completely non-dual prayer. It was called the Song of Mahamudra, which is one of the highest Buddhist teachings, completely non-dual, There's, you know, no devotion, nothing like that, it's all one, blah, blah, blah. And he said, it was right. Then he kept going through the book, right? And there was a little picture of him. And he goes, who's that? I said, Baba, it's you. Nay, Buddha.
2: Thank you for listening to the Krishna Das Pilgrim Heart Hour. We really appreciate your support and hope you'll continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com kd and clicking on the donate button or using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Thank you, namaste.